Hey, Northridge family. It really has been an unforgettable summer, hasn't it? I mean, each communicator has brought a, an impacting spiritual truth that, that I know has marked me. I hope it's really helped you as well. I, I was excited to be back with you last weekend sharing the unforgettable truth that God's been working into my life lately, but, but this weekend we get to move forward. In fact, we have a brand new spiritual communicator to Northridge Church. He's, he's the executive pastor of leadership development and a teaching pastor at Central Church in Henderson, Nevada. This is a church that's making a worldwide impact. This communicator's wife's name is Lindsay. They have two children, Levi and Austin. And I have to tell you, we invited him to Northridge even though he's a Chicago Cubs fan. Give him some trash talk about that, but right now, would you please help me give a Northridge welcome to Sean Williams. All right. How's everybody doing today? Everybody good? It's so good to have you here. As Pastor Brad mentioned, my name is Sean. I have the opportunity to serve at a church called Central Church, which is in the Las Vegas area. And so that's the place that I call home now. Uh, but I actually lived in the Chicagoland area for about 15 years. And so the Midwest really has a very special place in my heart and my life. Uh, really, there's, there's so much about this experience that really is home for me. I'm so grateful for your invitation. Uh, as Pastor Brad mentioned, I am an avid fan of the team that boasts the best record in Major League Baseball right now, the Chicago Cubs. Now, I know that I might be a little bit of an island right now, that I'm like the only Cubs fan, but, but I need you to know that really what's behind my passion for the Chicago Cubs is the fundamental belief that I believe that God is actually a Cubs fan. I mean, Scripture actually teaches, you know, that, that the first would be last and the last would be first. The Cubs have been losing for 108 years, and so they've done so much losing that has to place them first in the heart of God. Now, if that's true, that's good news for you. That must mean that, that God's a Lions fan, right? That's at least the way that I see it. But anyway, it's, it's great to be here. Uh, so grateful to be a part of, of this weekend here at Northridge, just so you know, you know, across the country. Uh, we see what God's doing here, and we, we have so much admiration. They're so encouraged by all the great things that God is doing in this community and just the lives that are being changed, what God is doing to transform people's journeys. So thanks for what you're doing, and thanks for being an encouragement to our church and really the, all that, that takes place here. And so we're going to continue this series we've been in for the whole summer that's called Unforgettable. And really, it's all about these unforgettable truths of God and how they will change us and shape us and transform our journeys. Now, as I was trying to think about the, the unforgettable truth in my own life, there were lots of things that came to mind for me. But as I really began to think about and praying for it, there was one unforgettable truth of God that really rose to the service of my own heart. It's the unforgettable truth of God's radical forgiveness. And how this radical forgiveness over the few, last few years has, has shaped and molded and changed my life. God has used his radical and unconditional love and forgiveness to change who I am as a person. And so because of that, I thought I would just take a moment to kind of share with you a little bit about God's radical forgiveness and how that's played out in my journey. Now, have you ever been in a moment that you needed the forgiveness of someone else? That, that maybe you did something or you said something that kind of caused you in the place that, that, that you needed somebody to forgive you. Uh, I probably have had that happen to me way more times than I would like to admit. But the, the story that, that came to mind for me was when I was probably 20 or 21 years old. I was in college at the time. 
And the college that I attended hosted a, a conference for junior high students. And I love young people, and so the opportunity to spend some time with some young people and invest in their lives, I mean, I was chomping at the bud. I, I raised my hand and wanted to volunteer. And so I was assigned to lead this breakout workshop at this junior high conference, and I was so excited about it that I showed up probably 30 minutes early to the room that I was going to present in. It gave me the opportunity to meet some of the students before the workshop started, went around, gave some high fives, we joked a little bit, had some fun together. Now, when it came time for me to start, I went back to the front of the room, and I was just about to launch into what I was going to present when these five students walk in a little bit late. And I thought, I'm up at the front of the room. I'm in front of the whole group. I'm going to have a little fun with these students. Now, these five students walk in. There were four girls and a guy. I let the girls pass, and I stopped the guy, and I said, bro, I mean, what's your secret? Hanging out with four gorgeous women? This kid just looked at me like I was a total moron. But I was already kind of in it. And so I went ahead and took it to the next step. And I said, so you've been working out? You've been eating your Wheaties? Good brother, you got something going on. I mean, this kid just looked at me like I was a fool. But again, I was, I was now deep in it. And so I thought I would just kind of go all in with it. And I said, so you've got to understand, I've, I've really been struggling with my dating life. And I thought maybe you could give me a few pointers. And finally, the kid looks at me and says, I'm a girl. Let that one sit with you for a while. Like, the more you think about it, the worse that it gets, right? Like, I, I'm up in front of the whole room. I just humiliated this poor little girl. I kind of humiliated myself. There was not a shovel big enough to dig my way out of that one. I mean, I was kind of in the, the place that I was at the mercy of this poor little kid's forgiveness. Have you ever found yourself in a place that you needed somebody else's forgiveness? Have you ever done something or said something that, that you needed the grace of others? My guess is we've all been there, but we've also all been on the opposite end of that. For all of us, at some point in our journey, somebody has said something to us, somebody has done something to us, maybe somebody didn't do something they should have done, but we've all been wounded by someone at some point in time to a certain extent. We've all understood what it meant to be a place that we've been offended, we've been wounded, we've been hurt. We are at the position whether we're going to choose to offer grace, to offer mercy, to offer forgiveness, or for whatever reason, possibly choose not to. And so today I want to really explore just this radical idea of God's amazing forgiveness for us and the impact that could have in our own journeys. And so in order to have this conversation, I want to take us to a, a story that Jesus told us, located in the book of Matthew chapter 18. And so if you've got a Bible, you can go to Matthew 18, or if you'd like to use a smartphone or a tablet, again, it's Matthew chapter 18, or the verses will also show up on the screens as well. Now, in the, in the book of Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells this story in response to a question by one of his closest friends. It's a guy by the name of Peter. It was one of Jesus' closest companions in the journey. And, and Peter asks Jesus a question about forgiveness. Here's the question in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Now, you've got to understand a little bit of the cultural context behind Peter's question. Because Peter probably feels quite generous when he offers, God, you know, Jesus, should I forgive someone seven times? Because the cultural expectation back in that day is that you forgive somebody up to three times. It's kind of the idea that somebody was a repeat offender, if they have done something like over and over again, at some point you got to go, okay, 
They've got an unrepentant heart. I'm kind of now off the hook. I don't have to forgive them any longer. And according to the Jewish religious system, many of the rabbis were teaching this reality that you would, you, you're required to forgive three times. If somebody offended you once, you forgive. Twice, you still forgive. Third time, you forgive. Fourth time, no soup for you. So kind of like the third time was the place that you drew the line. And so Peter's probably feeling a little bit generous, going, Jesus, I know that the cultural norm is we forgive people three times, but you seem pretty gracious, dude. And so Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Should we forgive seven times? I almost imagine, you know, Peter's kind of puffing himself up, feeling pretty good. I'm more than double the cultural norm. That's pretty good, right? And look how Jesus responds to him. Very next verse. It says, no, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven times. Now, I'm no math scholar, but that's a lot more times. I mean, Jesus was saying, not just three times like the culture expects, not, not seven times like you suggest. I want you to forgive 490 times. Now, it's not the exact number that Jesus is getting at. He's not saying you forgive 490 times. Make sure you keep count because of that 491st time, that's where you draw the line. Instead, Jesus is using a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. Basically, what he's saying is, I want you to forgive and I want you to keep on forgiving. I want it to become a fundamental characteristic of who you are. I, I, I want you to be a reflection of who I am, and if that's true, forgiveness will become a part of the core reality of your existence. It'll become a part of your identity, that you will forgive as almost a reflex because of what things happen in your journey. Now, that's a pretty difficult teaching, particularly with somebody who's been wounded and even wounded very deeply and significantly and so Jesus explains this and helps us understand where we find the power and the courage to do what he's telling us to do. And so he launches into this parable, the, the story that, that you find in the following verses. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors who, brought, who was brought in owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay it. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything that he owned to pay that debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me. I'll, I'll pay it all. That his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. And so Jesus introduces this story about this master. You get the sense that it's a pretty wealthy guy. That he, that he owns a lot of things and he had lots of people working for him. But some of those people working for him, they owed him money. This one guy who was brought in owed him millions of dollars. I'm not sure how you rack up millions of dollars worth of debt, but that's the situation this guy finds himself in. That there's no way he's going to be able to repay it. It would have taken him multiple lifetimes to attempt to repay this kind of debt. He ain't going to be able to take care of it. And so what does the master immediately do? He says, well, in order to account for this debt that you have, I'm going to take you, your whole family, sell you into slavery, sell all that you have, and apply that to the debt. Now, understand this, this principle about that. That was not a sense of repayment. In no way would there be enough money that would be conjured up by the selling of all those things that it would take care of millions of dollars worth of debt. This was not repayment. This was retribution. This was punishment. This was getting back at the person who owed a debt that they couldn't pay. And so the person begins to fall on his knees and just beg for mercy that, that I understand I can't pay my debt, but would you have mercy on me? 
Would you show me grace even if I don't deserve it? Would you forgive me of this debt? And it says that this master took pity on him, that he chose to extend grace to him, and that he forgave the debt, he eradicated the debt. There's something very important that we have to understand about forgiveness. Forgiveness recognizes a debt that exists between two people. Forgiveness causes the one who was offended, the one who was owed the debt, to take care of that debt. And so this servant, he's set free from the debt. I mean, I mean it's pretty awesome. He once owed millions of dollars. Now he doesn't owe anything. I mean, that, that must have been an incredible, like, joy-filled type of experience. You would, have, you would expect for him to walk away feeling changed, transformed. He's a whole new person. Like, this weight's been lifted off of him. But, but look what happens next. You read in the very next verse. It says, but when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before and, and, and begged him for a little bit more time. Be patient with me and I'll pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put into prison until the debt could be paid in full. And so no sooner has this man be forgiven of an insurmountable debt that he does a little debt collecting of his own. And he goes and finds somebody, he owes him a couple thousand dollars. Now, again, that's still a lot of money. If somebody owed me a couple thousand dollars, I would want to make sure I got that back. But the point is, not that it wasn't, a, I mean, the point was that it actually was a, a large sum of money, but it was nothing compared to the insurmountable debt that he was just set free from. But though he was forgiven, he chose not to forgive. Though he was shown mercy, he chose not to extend that mercy. Though he received grace, he chose not to extend grace. He had no mercy on his fellow servant. Now what Jesus is getting at is a powerful spiritual truth for you and I in our, in our lives. Because what happens in, in many times in our own journeys is this, is we are a lot like that character in that story. That Jesus tells these parables and stories because these characters represent spiritual realities. That the, the master in the story, that's God himself. That God is the owner of everything. That God is rich in every possible way. And the truth is, you and I had a debt to God. Because of my sin, because of my brokenness, because of the things that I have done, I created a separation between myself and God that I could not overcome that debt. I created the debt, but I couldn't pay that debt. I couldn't overcome it. It was an insurmountable debt to me. So what did God do? God in his great mercy paid that debt on my behalf. God in his great mercy, he set me free. God in his great mercy gave me what I didn't deserve. And so you would think that that would change my heart and life. But sometimes I have a hard time taking what I've received from God and I have a hard time extending it to others. Though I've been forgiven an eternal debt, I have a hard time forgiving people of sometimes insignificant things. Like for example, if, if I'm in a parking lot and I turn my blinker on to indicate that that parking space is my parking space. And somebody pulls in front of me and grabs that parking space. I have a hard time forgiving that. You know, I think about, you know, moments that, that my wife tells me that she'll be on time, this very important event that we're going to, and she decides to show up a little fashionably late. 
Sometimes I have a hard time forgiving that. You know, I think about the moment that, that I'm in the, the grocery store in the express aisle. As somebody brings 14 items to the line that says very clearly 10 items or less. I tell you, if I'm standing in that line, you bet your bottom dollar I'm counting the number of items that you're bringing to that particular line, right? Because sometimes I have a hard time extending forgiveness for simple, simple things in life. Much less things that actually matter. For some of us, we've experienced great wounds throughout our lives. And for some of us, we, we grew up in homes that we had an absentee parent. Mom or, or dad left us when we were very young, forced us to live in, in a home with a sense of rejection, a sense of abandonment. In a sense, they, they took some of our childhood from us. It caused us to, to wrestle with things and emotions that, that, that no child should ever have to wrestle with, much less now as an adult, decades later, still wrestling with the same thing. The reality is they, they, they took something from us. There, there's a debt there. For others of us, we used to have somebody that we called a really close friend. I mean, we did everything together. They were the closest of relationship to us. But that falling out took place. It's been a long time. We haven't talked to them in a decade. That relationship that was once close is now worlds apart. And we've never forgot what they did. We, we never forgot the, the pain that we experienced at their hand. And the pain that they've caused us has created a debt. The reality is they owe us. For some of us, it's the most important relationship in our lives that have caused us the greatest hardship. That there was a day that we stood on that altar that we said, I do. And when we said, I do, we intended that to be a lifelong decision, a lifelong commitment. And we assumed that when the other person said, I do, we assumed that that was going to be their position as well. But for whatever reason, they walked out. For whatever reason, they, they, they chose another person. And it left us reeling. It left us feeling empty. It left us feeling void. There's a debt that exists there. question becomes, what do we do with that debt? Because the offender, they, they can't pay the debt. They can't give us our childhood back. They can't restore our emotional state. They can't reconcile that most important relationship. It is a debt that they cannot pay. It's an insurmountable debt, and it seems some, somewhat unfair that the person who was wounded, that the person who was offended, is the only person who can eradicate the debt. And the truth is, the reason we struggle sometimes with forgiveness is because we understand that forgiveness is costly. And it feels almost unfair that it costs the one that was wounded. It costs the one that was offended. Forgiveness is costly. But I would argue, friends, that unforgiveness is more costly I would actually suggest to us that unforgiveness is actually more costly. What I mean by that is this. If you continue with Jesus' story, what you find out is that master ends up bringing that, that unmerciful servant back into his presence. He says, I can't believe that I forgave you millions of dollars worth of debt, and you were not willing to extend that same grace to somebody who owed you something so much less. And so if that's the rules that you want to operate by, 
I'm going to allow you to operate by those rules. And so he takes the guy and he throws him into prison. You know, I think in, in many ways that's what happens when we live out unforgiveness. That we become prisoners in the context of our own heart and our own journey. Because we've been wounded, we've been hurt, we're experiencing pain in our lives. And what happens is, in the midst of that pain, starts, anger starts growing, bitterness starts growing. Sometimes it wants a sense of revenge. Sometimes it wants to return evil for evil. It wants to, the person who's wounded us, we want to wound them. But the challenge with that is, we become prisoners of our own bitterness and anger. I read somewhere at one time that says that bitterness is kind of like drinking poison, hoping that it kills the other person. But the only person that's wounded is me. Is it possible that part of the reason why God wants us to forgive is not even for the sake of the offender? It's actually for the sake of my own heart. To set my own heart free. N.T. Wright talks about it in this way. He says that forgiveness is like the air of our lungs, that we take a deep breath in. And we take a deep breath in, if we don't let that breath out of forgiveness, if we don't give people the kiss of life that they so desperately need, it hinders our ability to take another deep breath in. And so we end up suffocating on our own unforgiveness. Forgiveness is costly. But I would argue that unforgiveness is even more costly. But let's be candid about what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. Here's what forgiveness is not. Now, forgiveness is not a place that we aren't willing to acknowledge the offense. It's okay to acknowledge the offense. And I actually feel like forgiveness practiced correctly acknowledges the offense, but chooses to forgive anyway. I also think there's a, there's a huge distinction between what I would call forgiveness and trust. And though God says, I want you to forgive, he's not necessarily saying, I want you to immediately trust the offender again. Because in many times, in many circumstances, trust is something that has to be re-earned. Notice Jesus' story. The master forgives the million dollar debt, but he doesn't give the guy another million dollars. There's a difference between forgiveness and trust. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is the acknowledgement, the reality that, that, that you've wounded me, and I have every right to wound you, Mac, and I choose not to. That you have hurt me, and I have every right to hurt you back, and I choose not to. That you have a debt to me, and I'll acknowledge the debt, but I'm going to choose not to seek out revenge because I understand that doesn't eradicate the debt, that magnifies the debt. And so what forgiveness is, is the recognition that you owe me, but from my vantage point, you don't owe me anymore. That you hurt me, but you don't owe me anymore. And it's the choice, the intentional choice, day after day, week after week, year after year, to not repay evil for evil, but to say, you don't owe me anymore. Where do we get the power and the courage to do that. I think the key to this unforgettable truth is, is locked in one of the last verses of this story. Here, here's how Jesus concludes the story. He says this. He says, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant? And catch this. Just as I have had mercy on you. 
I mean, I think the key of this, this unforgettable truth is locked in those two words right in the middle where he says, just as. Because it's this fundamental understanding that forgiveness doesn't start with us. My friends, that's the greatest news in the world. That we don't have to conjure up the power and the courage ourselves. that forgiveness doesn't start with us. It starts with our great God. It's this recognition that, again, I had a great debt to God. That because of my sin, because of my brokenness, because of the things that I've done, I separated myself from God. But what did God do in our behalf? One of the most powerful truths in all the scripture, it says that while we were still sinners, that while we were still messed up, while we were still far off, God didn't say, get your stuff together. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God saw the debt. He saw the brokenness. He saw that we couldn't pay the debt. So what did God do? God paid it on our behalf. My friends, it's the greatest story in the world. And I owe everything to a God who was willing to pay the ultimate price on my behalf. And so what God says is, forgiveness doesn't start with you. It started with me. And the first thing that I want you to do before you do anything else is, I want you to receive my forgiveness. Because here's what I believe with everything that I am. If you miss everything else that I, that I say, don't miss this. I believe with everything that I am, it is impossible to be a forgiving person until you fully embrace that you're a forgiven person. It's impossible to be a forgiving person until you fully embrace that you're a forgiven person. It all starts with our relationship with him. It all starts with the acknowledgement that God says, I don't want you to do unto others as they've done to you. I don't want you to do unto others as they deserve. I want you to do unto others as I have done for you. I want you to forgive because you've been forgiven. I want you to extend mercy because I've extended mercy to you. I want you to be gracious because I have lavished my grace on you. For me, that became a life-changing truth just a few years ago. I remember it very well. I was preparing a message for a weekend that I was delivering at the church that I was at at the time, and it was a message on the life of Jonah. And if you know anything about the Old Testament guy by the name of Jonah, he was a guy that God called, that God wanted him to go share God's message of, of grace and love and forgiveness with this group of people called the Ninevites. Jonah wasn't really into that idea. He thought, you know, that's probably fine if the Ninevites receive God's love. I don't have any desire to be the carrier of that message. God, I don't want to be your messenger. And so he kind of ran away from it, ran away from that idea. He tried to avoid it at all costs. And as I was kind of thinking through and praying through this message, it kind of caused me to ask this question, who are our Ninevites? I mean, who are the people that we find it very difficult to extend grace and, and mercy and, and, and forgiveness to? And I remember as I was kind of preparing my heart to deliver that talk, I was having this conversation with God in prayer, and very arrogantly, I began to say, God, thank you that I don't have any Ninevites in my life. And I didn't get through the whole statement before I felt like God saying, not so fast, Pastor Boy. And God brought this name and this face to my mind that I hadn't thought about in a little while. You see, it was months earlier that my home was broken into while my family was home. And I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that, but it was a, it was a pretty unnerving experience. It was not that the, the things that were taken, I mean, that was not that big of a deal. I mean, all the possessions can be replaced, but the thought that somebody was in my home 
to do harm while my three and five-year-old boys were asleep at night. Somebody was in my home while me and my wife were present. It was a, it was a disturbing experience. Uh, they, they took from me my security more than anything else. They, they took from me kind of any kind of sense of, uh, of peace in the context of my home. I mean, the best way I know how to describe it is I felt very, very violated. Well, our home was the first of, of probably seven or eight residential burglaries that took place in my neighborhood in the coming weeks. After probably the seventh or eighth one, the person responsible had a little bit of a misstep, and because of that, he was apprehended by the authorities. And so on the headline of our local news, I got to know the name and the face of the person who was responsible for the crime in my home. There was, there was a sense initially that I kind of felt a sense of relief that, that, that possibly it wasn't going to happen again since this person was apprehended. And so really I kind of pushed it down and I didn't really think about it too much, at least for a little while, until preparing this message about Jonah. And it was kind of the moment that the God kind of helped me understand that, that maybe I did have a Ninevite. And I kind of sensed in my spirit that God was saying, I want you to go and share my message of love and grace and forgiveness with this person who broke into your home. And I kind of never felt more like Jonah in my life. I'm like, really, God? Like, I'm perfectly fine with the guy feeling loved. I'm perfectly fine with him embracing your forgiveness. I'm, I hope that the guy's life gets transformed, but please don't make me do it. Like, surely there's somebody else who can deliver that message. And I fought it with everything that I was. I was running the other way as far as Jonah, you know, would have been. But I couldn't shake it. I mean, I, I couldn't sleep at night. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get it out of my heart, my mind. And I knew that it's something that I had to do. And so it was probably 48 hours later, I found myself on a Thursday morning driving to the jail cell that I knew that he was being held at. And I remember the whole drive there, there was this wrestling in my own heart, my own spirit, thinking I would rather be anywhere else in the world than where I'm about to be. And I got to the jail that particular day, and I remember sitting in the parking lot for an obscene amount of time because I didn't want to walk through those doors. But eventually, I feel like God gave me the courage, and, and I walked in knowing exactly why God wanted me to go. Because as a pastor, I can visit inmates without being on their visitation list. And so I walked in, I, I let the, the police officers there know that I was a pastor and the, the, the person that I wanted to see. They looked at me, not really understanding the whole idea, but, but nevertheless, they allowed me to do it. And I signed that guest registry, I walked into the visitation booth and I sat down. Eventually this young man was brought and he was sat right in front of me and he had this very confused look on his face as he looked at me. And I prepared and kind of memorized 10 seconds of what I was going to say because I had no idea what I was going to say beyond that. Kind of trusting that maybe God would come through in some way. And so I sat across, uh, you know, between this glass with this, this young man and I just simply said, I know you don't know me, uh, but I'm a pastor in the area and I know a little bit about your story. And I just felt like God wanted me to show up today to let you know that, that he loves you and that he forgives you. And he looked back at me, kind of confused, and goes, thanks, man. And it kind of launched us into a conversation. And I began to ask him a little bit more about what life was like in his shoes and what it was like to grow up in the home that he grew up in and the, the things that he had done throughout his, his very young life. And I quickly discovered this young man really didn't have anybody. He didn't have a father figure. He had an absentee mom. 
And it kind of reminded me that when I signed that guest list, I was only the second name on that guest list, though he had been there for over six months. He didn't have anybody. And I found my heart really bending toward him just very compassionately. And I found myself just, just truly loving this young kid. Just somewhere 10 to 15 minutes in, I kind of sensed God tugging at my heart again, going, Sean, you, you really need to let him know who you really are. I was like, God, I don't really feel like I need to do that. I'm perfectly content with <laughs> right now. I felt like God was saying, no, you need to let him know who you are. And so I said, I think I need to be candid with you. Um, I am a pastor in the area, but I also know part of the reason you're here is you're responsible for some residential burglaries. I'm actually one of those homeowners. And his eyes got real big. It was almost like deer in the headlights. And he goes, Furlong Street? Corner house? I'm like, bro, that's a little bit eerie, but yes. And there's this long pause, and he just goes, I'm sorry. And I said, you know, I didn't come here for an apology. I really didn't. But it means a lot to me that you would be willing to to extend that to me. And, and I want you to know that not only does God love you and that God forgives you, I want you to know that I love you and I forgive you. It, it got us talking a lot about second chances. I believe in a God of second chances. And so I began to talk to him about, you know, the second chances that I think that he would even be able to experience in the context of that jail cell. But the second chance that God would give him in, 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 when he gets out of this place, that I believe in a God who's in the business of giving people a new life and a new hope and a new beginning, a fresh start. And so we started talking a lot about really what that looks like and what it means to, 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 be, to be connected to the God of the second chance. That's when I felt like God tugging at me again. I'm like, seriously, God, like, leave me alone. This is, you know, like, get a little bit old. But I felt like what God was telling me is, Sean, you don't need to just talk to him about being a second chance. You need to personally be his second chance. And so I looked at him and I said, you know, the first time you came into my home, you came in without an invitation. But when you get out of this place, I want you to come back to my home, but this time I want you to come by my invitation. I want you to come eat dinner with my family. I want, you to welcome, I want to welcome you into my life. And in the context of that jail cell, God helped me forge what really would become an unlikely friend. A young man that I've grown to love. A young man that I've grown to want to fight for. You know, over the course of time, a few people have heard about this story and they'll say something to me like, you know, Sean, it's really cool what you've done for that young man. I don't see it that way at all because I'm so grateful what that young man has done for me. Because I think for the very first time in my life, I understand the, the words that, about forgiveness that Lewis Mead writes when he says, forgiveness is setting the prisoner free only to discover that that prisoner was me. It's impossible to be a forgiving person until we fully embrace that we are forgive in person. 
But when we, ex- when we experience that which God freely gives us, when we allow our lives to be wrecked by God's mercy, by God's grace, by God's forgiveness, it transforms us, it empowers us, it gives us the courage to do what we can never do on our own. That we forgive just as in Christ God has forgiven us. Who is it in your life? Who is it that's hurt you, that's offended you, that's wounded you? That they cannot pay their debt. That the only way that the debt will ever get paid is if you say, you don't owe me anymore. That you set them free, and in doing so, God sets you free. I want to encourage you to take a step of forgiveness. And maybe you're somebody who's been a follower of Jesus for quite some time, and and if that's your story, I would encourage you in this next moment to just kind of lean in to what you've already received in Jesus. That you would lean into his forgiveness, that you would receive it in such a way that it would empower you to be able to extend it. But maybe for some of us, we've never received the forgiveness of God that's made available to us in Jesus. And I want to give you that opportunity to do that for the very first time. And so I'm just simply going to say the words of a prayer. If you'd like to, you can just simply respond by praying the words of this prayer after me. Whether you do it for the first time or whether you do it for the hundredth time, we all need God's grace to give us power to extend it. And so let's all collectively together bow and pray this prayer. God, thank you for loving me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose again. Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Give me the gift of eternal life. Help me forgive because I'm forgiven. In Christ's name, amen. Let's give it up for those who made spiritual decisions today. You know, if you are somebody who made a spiritual decision today, uh, I want to encourage you to take your program you see when you walk in the door, and you'll see there's a tearaway piece. And I would encourage you to communicate that decision that you made, particularly if you made the decision for the very first time to receive God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness, the relationship that he extends to us through Jesus. We'd encourage you to fill that out. And we want want you to do so so that we have a team here that would love to follow up with you, to find out how we can serve you, find out how we can come along with you, uh, really to to serve you in the best possible way. And so you can tear that card off, you can drop it on your way out at any of the exits. Uh, We also want to make you aware that there'll be some prayer team members down front, and if we can pray for you or pray for a relationship in your life, we would love to serve you in that way. But thanks so much for being with us this weekend. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you next week.